This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 15. Today we'll be discussing the small budget indie sci-fi flick, Primer. I am your host, Jeff. I am your co-host, Harry. All right. Well, Harry, welcome to the show again. Um, listen, let's, uh, let's start off. I mean, I, I, uh, I know we usually reminisce at the top of the show. Uh, was this a movie you were aware of when it, uh, this movie came out in 2004? Is, did it hit your radar at all? Not really, but I kept reading about it online as a, a movie to watch for science fiction, you know, must-see science fiction flicks. I just, I never got access to it immediately when I first heard about it, and then it just kind of slipped off my radar, and then reading later, it went on my radar, but couldn't find it, and I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go out and buy a movie just based on word of mouth, so mm-hmm. uh, I had to figure out some way to watch it, and I won't tell you how I watched it this time, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm sure it was uh, all legal. I'm sure it was all legal. <laughs> yes, of course it is, man. What are you talking about? Of course, yeah. No, that's why I said just wanted to. I didn't want there to be any confusion for no. our audience that we would ever condone illegally. I will downloaded. make it legal. So. <laughs> <laughs> we still can't get through quoting those movies. Oh well, <laughs> it's a long-lasting impression. After getting yeah, those. well, we we did spend many an hour. Uh, diving deep into that stuff. So, so yeah, I finally watched it. So, but it was on my radar here and there. Okay. Great. Well, I mean, I, you know, for me, uh, it did not hit my radar when it first was released. Uh, it was a couple years later when it, it hit DVD. I just, I kind of heard about sort of an indie science fiction film, which uh, always piques my interest. And I've, I've been on the search my whole life for the perfect time travel movie. Uh, or the perfect time travel story. So, uh, and, you know, any time that something kind of comes up, I'm uh, I gravitate towards it right away. Uh, so I saw this movie probably 2006, 2007, and a couple times since, and uh, never. <laughs> well, we'll get into it a bit. Never really was able to uh, to decode the plot of the film, uh, really. But uh, I've seen it a few times since then. So, uh, but this is uh, a very small. Go ahead, man. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to. Sorry to interrupt. You you said you were looking for the perfect time travel movie, <laughs> Back to the Future, Star Trek movies. Those do not qualify as perfect or almost perfect. Uh, to you? Okay. Well, just out of curiosity, I just want to know what you're what what bar you're setting perfection here. That it that it yeah, that it makes sense. That it perfect. makes sense. That it makes that it makes like that it doesn't drop. Uh, the, the logic ball at any point. Uh, Back to the Future does not pass the test, although it is a near perfect movie, but as far as the time travel logic goes, um, it's not, uh, greatly flawed and, uh, it does a, it does a very good job. And I, and that's okay because it's Back to the Future and it's, it's about uh, so much more and they can, you know, they're able to kind of paint over some of those blemishes with, uh, you know, the honest performances and the energy of the film, but it's not perfect. Uh, Star Trek, if we're talking about the films, um, definitely not. Nothing's perfect about the time, though, you know, well, how many time travel films uh, were there at Star Trek? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so definitely not, you know, the t- time travel, the time travel in Star Trek first contact is uh, abys- abysmally ridiculous. And, uh, in Star Trek four, it's the time travel itself 
Like there's no loops or logic or anything like that. So like they just go back in time to get some whales. The time travel is kind of irrelevant. So I don't really count that one. Speaking um, of loops, it's been a while since I've seen it. Have you seen Looper? I have seen Looper. Yeah. Have you seen the interesting film? Uh, the time travel is total bullshit in that movie. It is, uh, uh, in fact, the time travel logic of Looper is the worst part of Looper. Interesting. Okay. But perhaps we can, uh, we can do a show on, on that because, uh, definitely a good movie for discussion. But what about you? Any, uh, any time travel movie favorites for yourself? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. All right, yeah, that's, pretty that's, simple stuff. No, uh, not, not not that they're uh, you know perfect. You know, it's as a, as you said. Like for me, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it. The I think the the focus of this movie is really about the mechanism of time travel, yeah, versus something else, right? Like the what the heart of the story is. You mentioned Back to the Future or Star Trek movies and stuff. Time travel is just a, a MacGuffin or a mechanism. Yeah to tell the story something else what's going on here it's just about the time travel in in mm-hmm. a sense i'd say a little more so but it'll be inter- uh, yeah we can talk about it later yeah yeah um i'll i'll throw a couple of details about the film at you here uh, just to kind of contextualize it this is an ultra low budget film it was made for around $7000 us uh very difficult to make a film most of the budget in fact was spent on the film stock itself Excellent. Um, so I can make a movie about going back in time and killing you. So it's great. I can afford it. You could afford it. Yeah, yes. you could afford it. <laughs> I'm sure you also have the talent and resourcefulness to pull off such a feat. Um, uh, I'll talk a little bit about how the budget kind of factors in or the low budget feel of factors in as we, as we get in. But I think it's important to note that this is very low budget. Uh, it, it did, uh, it grossed approximately $425,000 US in its theatrical run. So certainly not a smash hit by any means, but um, when you consider how small the budget was, uh, fairly, fairly successful. Uh, it opened on October 10th, 2004 on only four screens. Its widest release was 31 uh, screens. So it was uh, very, very limited. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, this, this film was sort of shot uh, and, and produced Robert Rodriguez style. Uh, the director, Shane Carruth, um, he was the writer, director, star, uh, sound production design, all of that stuff on this film. So he basically made the film with his, uh, with his own bare hands, if you will. Um, he, they spent about six months sh- actually shooting the film. And then he spent two years in post-production before this, uh, this hit the screen. Uh, what's interesting is this did not really lead to much of a career for uh, for himself or anybody else involved with the film. He has one other film to his credit, a uh, film called Upstream Color, another small film, which came out in uh, 2012, I believe. Um, his co-star, David Sullivan, actually is the only one who's sort of gone on to a career, a solid working actor. Um, he's got about 50 credits to his name. He's been on TV and uh, a couple of films. Uh, this and Primer did win the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 2004. So I uh, just have a, a a little bit of hardware to to call its own, but um, yeah, it's never really kind of graduated from uh, I guess you could say relative obscurity. It shows up on lists here and there. Still not a very widely enjoyed or widely watched film. So, but I figure it's time to get to the plot synopsis. Is there any other thoughts you want to uh, get out there before we jump in? Only thought is, is good luck with the plot synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did my best, man. Um, 
Uh, I'll say this before I get into the plot synopsis is not going to uh, hit every nook and cranny. I've got, uh, uh, we'll, we'll kind of get into that when we do the blow by blow, but uh, this should hopefully give a reasonable idea of what happens. So here we go. Primer. Two entrepreneurial engineers, Abe and Aaron, supplement their day jobs by working on tech projects out of Aaron's garage, trying to stumble across the next great innovation. While working on a device that can reduce an object's mass through electromagnetic induction, they discover that they have created a time loop where an object can exit the loop at a point in time before it entered. Abe builds a larger version of the box, one able to house a human subject, and uses the box to travel six hours into his own past. Future Abe tracks down Aaron and explains that he has traveled back in time six hours as proof of concept. And like any noble, world-changing geniuses would, they set to work on using this fantastic technology to save the world. Eh, eh, maybe that's too much work. They decide to just get rich instead. Here's the plan. They each construct a box, house it inside a storage facility, and set the box to activate in 15 minutes. They then head to a hotel, watch basketball and hotel porn for six hours, or whatever it is you do when sequestered away, and then head back to the storage facility, deactivate the box, and climb inside for six hours, only to emerge six hours in the past with knowledge of the day's events. They play some stock trades, make a few bucks, rinse, and repeat. After a few of these trips, Aaron begins to wonder at the possibilities. Could he, say, punch a dude in the face? Like, really lay one on him? and then go back and stop himself in order to avoid the consequences. Late one night, as Aaron and Abe hatch a plan to, well, punch some dude in the face, they come across Abe's girlfriend's father, Thomas Granger, looking a little rough around the edges. He has a few days more beard growth than he should, and his proximity to Aaron knocks him into a coma. Granger must have used the box to come back in time, but who could have told him about the box, and why? Did some future emergency cause Abe or Aaron to tell him about the box and send him back to stop something? It's impossible to know for certain, but Abe concludes that this whole time travel thing is just a little too dangerous. Abe reveals a third box running this whole time, designed as a failsafe in case something went wrong. Abe travels back to the beginning to stop the whole experiment, but Aaron is way ahead of him. Aaron found out about the failsafe box and used it to come back first, with another box in tow. His objective? To prevent an incident where Abe's girlfriend was nearly killed by her shotgun-toting ex-boyfriend. Their mission is a success, but now there are two Abes in the present time, along with three Aarons, and no way to reconcile their desperate time frames. Future Abe stays to watch over his alternate self and his girlfriend, forever lost to him, to prevent any possibility of the box being built again. The two alternate Aarons vanish, with all knowledge of how to perfect time travel, and perhaps build the box once again. The end. So that's the best I could boil it down. Um, again, usually at this point of the show, we're, we're asking if this is compelling. Uh, does this sound like a, an interesting time travel plot to you from what I've detailed so far? I would say mixed, mainly because you left out, I guess, some of the details we'll eventually talk about, yeah. just based on the synopsis. But I mean, it, it was a good job because it's a, it, you, you simplified it. It's pretty complicated. Like even the number of boxes you have to wrap your head around. I still yeah. don't even know if I get it all. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh. What, what's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? You know? At the end of this movie, I just want like, you know, an infinite loop of like Brad Pitt just doing his head bob. <laughs> he can bring in George Clooney too, uh, with yeah. the head bob. <laughs> no, that's when he goes back. George Clooney goes, uh, you know, Brad Pitt goes Maybe. in the box, Clooney comes out. Clooney comes out. There you go. That's, that's what happened. That's what happened. <laughs> George Clooney is the future version of Brad Pitt. <laughs> there, that'll blow your mind, ladies and gentlemen. I guess so. Um, yeah, no, definitely. It, it's uh, it's a uh, it's a film that um, 
you know, it's it's hard to just sort of look at the plot and, and actually figure out what's going on. Uh, and, and I think there's some some interesting things to kind of be unpacked here. It is difficult to to kind of decode because there is no exposition in this film uh, whatsoever. You, you really got to watch and pay attention in order to get it. And even then, um, you, you need to sort of speculate, fill in the blanks, I, I think so. Uh, if we get into the uh, any other thoughts before we kind of get into the scene by scene here? No, no, let's go for it. All right, so the the film opens. I actually love the opening line. It's it appears to be a phone call or a, an answering machine message, and and the line is uh, here is what's going to happen. And uh, I, I kind of I love how that opens because you know a, a story is about to unfold here. So it's like the narrative, yeah. In a sense. Yeah, in a sense, it's like the narrative. That's right. Uh, so we we meet four. Uh, sort of working class engineers, uh, and, and, and the names are important, I think, cause it's easier to keep straight, but, uh, Aaron, Abe, uh, Philip and Robert, Aaron and Abe are our, our principals. Philip and Robert are, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, placeholders basically. So they work at some engineering firm. Um, and then we see them, like they make some homemade electronic products, uh, basically in Aaron's garage in their spare time. Uh, they, you know, they, the movie opens, they've, they've had some interesting patents. They haven't made any money, and uh, we we kind of hear a side uh, note about a guy named Joseph Platts who stole a previous idea of theirs, and they had no no recourse. So um, I I really liked you know they're working in the garage, they're sitting around the kitchen table, you know they haven't struck it rich. They're you know they're sort of hand packaging all these items that they've sold, and and I get the you know the feeling. I think it's obviously sort of meant to evoke you know the early the early days of of sort of the the computer revolution in Silicon Valley, you know, just a couple guys soldering parts together in a garage. And, uh, yeah, you, you don't get any fancy sets or sci-fi CGI stuff going on. Just, uh, you know, real rough around the edges kind of stuff. What did you, what did you think about, uh, that, that particular choice? Uh, yeah, I liked the realism in, in that sense. As you mentioned, the innovation back in the day in Silicon Valley, and it's just, you know, some nobodies working away in, in non-luxurious space, you know, just a very makeshift lab area where they can discuss and work and do their ideas, right? Which is just their garage or the kitchen of their uh, one guy's house, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much it. And I felt I liked that grounded the movie a little bit there. Yeah. You could start to relate to these guys in a sense. Well, at least I can because, you know, I understand these people. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> doing science for the man for for peanuts, basically, is the part you can understand, right? Yes, essentially. <laughs> so, yeah, I enjoyed that. And, yeah, you're right. It, it reminds you of, I guess, how should I say it? Uh, I, I would expect that most of mankind's inventions have not happened in the confines of, like, you know, billion-dollar laboratories. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. a lot of them are in, like, these no-name places, you know, where guys just drink booze, you know, that's dirty it's not sterile, it's not clean, and it's just makeshift, right? Because they can't afford anything else. And that's where the true geniuses are born. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a great place to, to ground the movie in its opening. I also really enjoyed where they just, they go into technical jargon. They're trying to build some kind of device, and they're pointing at technical diagrams on the wall. I was and waiting for a reference to the Heisenberg compensators, but... Uh, <laughs> I didn't Heisenberg compensator? <laughs> What about the, uh, the, uh, hydro spanners or the, um, ah, fuck, I don't know. But I, I, I love the, I love the techno babble here because they don't explain shit. And it's, it's way past, you know, the, the layperson's, uh, 
the level of knowledge. So it's, I find it very honest in that way as well. I think it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, uh, Aaron and Abe, uh, they developed this device and we don't really get an idea of what they're doing. We get, we can see that they're, you know, they're trying to remove the, you know, the, the coolant, uh, from some kind of device. But as we can see, uh, they put an object in this box and it seems to reduce the mass uh, of this object. So right there, you know, that, so, you know, you're going to see some serious shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like the re- I like the reference there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I mean, basically they're building an anti-gravitational device electromagnetically coupled, which is, uh, also a pretty cool idea. I liked how they, you know, when they're building it, they're cannibalizing everything. They, uh, they take the catalytic converter out of, uh, the guy's car for some palladium. They're, they're scavenging like a microwave, refrigerator, all kinds of this other shit. And, uh, in order just to build this tiny little, this little box. So again, kind of going back to what we were saying, you know, these guys are broke. They don't have anything. They just have to build it from what they've got. And I thought that was, I thought that was a pretty cool idea there. Yeah. No, no, it worked for sure. Mm-hmm. So they don't really, um, so they know that they've, uh, created this machine that uh, can theoretically reduce the mass of an object. They're trying to figure out exactly, you know, what it's doing and how and what, how they can monetize it. Right. They don't really, uh, they don't really know. Right. Um, so while they're, while they're, uh, working on some of the theoretical problems, uh, they establish or they try to establish funding from, a uh, another tech, uh, businessman named Thomas Granger. And in the course of the months of, uh, working with this Granger, Abe, uh, gets together with his daughter, uh, Rachel. And that relationship will become important later on, obviously. So uh, they're still working on, uh, on how the device works. I want to just point out, like, this is yeah. you're getting your first instance here where I know that they need funding to actually make what they want to make, yeah. like their projects, so that's understandable. But you mentioned before, they're just trying to figure out ways to monetize their inventions. Yeah. This is, again, and I think we could talk about it, it's the first sign of the purpose behind what they really want to do. It's about greed. Yeah. It's not about yeah. innovation. It's more about just making money. Yeah, I, I, I think... I think I half agree with you. I mean, obviously they need to find a way to monetize it because if they don't find a way to monetize it, then they have to abandon the project. So I think, I think there's a combination there. I think that they are actually interested in the science and the knowledge, but, um, and as we see later, obviously they, they want to make a bunch of money. I mean, that's why they're in this field in this area is they, they do, they want to make a bunch of money, but I also get the impression that they want to do it in the absolute coolest way possible. Yeah. But that's, that's real world. That's exactly. Uh, how, how the innovators ha- have worked, generally speaking. These uh, guys yeah, want to in make- the modern world today, yes. Yeah, in the modern world. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. So, uh, we'll get, so now we get to a scene where Aaron is sitting on a, a bench, uh, listening to his earphone and Abe approaches. He looks a little out of sorts and, uh, I like the line here where Aaron's like, I've been, I've been calling you all day, you know, calls you at work, calls you at home. And he kind of looks up and he's like, I'm not there. And so right now, you know, something's uh, kind of off. And because we know it's a time travel movie, obviously, um, you know, you can, you can, you can connect the dots, but I liked how, so now we get to the point where Abe is walking Aaron through what the discoveries are going to be. And specifically the little weevil that they put inside the box. Uh, they discover there's a fungus growing on it. They take it for analysis. Uh, we, this is the only kind of exposition that we get here is they go to some experts yeah. to figure out. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wish that I think this scene I'm, I wasn't too much of a fan of 
I kind of mm-hmm. wish they, yeah, it'd be hard to maybe figure out another way to do it. Uh, you know, just, it was kind of confusing at first. Yeah. What kind of moss is this? I was getting confused. Are you talking about like a interdimensional moss or it's just like growth? I think they took a long time to really, at least that's my interpretation. Yeah, I, they did kind of take a long time. It was very technical. They were talking about some protein secreted by fungus or some shit. I, I don't know, but yeah, you're just- right. I yeah. didn't like this part of the movie with the fungus at all. I felt yeah. that they could have done something a little different here. Well, I, yeah, I, I think I agree with you there because this point, like it's because of how technical they made it, it's easy to lose the viewer at a point where it's not really necessary to lose some. Exactly. Yeah. Cause already yeah. before it's not a fast movie. It's a slow movie. It's a gra- yeah. real movie. Yeah. And so much, as you said, it, it's so much talking about tech and innovations and guys are just sitting around and talking about it. There's no MacGuffin yet. And mm-hmm. then you go from that to talking about this moss. I think they right. have either skipped it all or it should have been something a little bit more easier to follow or interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They could have cut it down a little bit because shit's going to get real. You don't need to lose somebody talking about fungus yeah. for sure. Fungi. But what, yeah, fungi as, uh, so as we see that the, the amount of growth on the, on this item here is consistent with years of growth, not minutes or days or anything. So I wanted to ask that question too, since that was years mm-hmm. and they can only do hours, we'll get, which we'll get into. I'm a little lost here. I've only seen the movie once. Okay. So you've seen it a few times. Why don't you enlighten me? Yeah. I don't know if now's the time to explain it or later. Uh, okay. So you're asking the question, how could it have been in there for years? Well, that- I mean, it could be, it's fine if it's in there for years, but what's the, what is the catalyst or the driving factor to say when later, when they start going in these boxes? Yeah. Why is it they are only doing six hours and that's a fixed amount of time? going backwards in time six hours but this can only do this is the fungus did six years or years or however okay long that yeah. i'm a little confused okay um okay so i guess at this point because this is where uh, basically uh abe describes to aaron what's happening here is so they the the box that they created is a a time loop right so when they turn the box on that starts point at point a um, and as it's powering up, you can put the object in the box. And when they turn the box off, that's point B. Yep. Right. And there's that, a, yeah. all right. And there's a certain power down time there, right? Where you could take an item out. So what happens is, is that the, they put the item in there and it goes from point A to point B and then it cycles back to point A and it keeps, and then it'll cycle forward to point B. So it'll stay inside this loop indefinitely until they actually physically remove. Okay. The I thing see. from the box and, and break the waveform. Okay. Or, so or collapse the waveform. It's a perpetual loop for until you take it out. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, but then my, my yeah. question is later when they go in the box, don't they still have to wait out six hours of actual time to be go back six hours in time? They, they do indeed. Yes. Yeah. So then I don't understand how this thing, whatever was creating this fungus or the fungus yeah. itself, if it had yeah. to be in there for years, I don't understand okay. the length of time that it was actually in there in reality. Right. So that's where I'm getting confused. So, so how I, I had to do a little bit of uh, research here. So what I understand is that at a certain point, cause they say, uh, at a, so at a certain point, um, or at any point along its loop from point A to point B, there's a certain probability that, uh, it will just drop out of the loop by itself. Okay. And after a certain number of, of, uh, 
of trips through, something like 1337 loops through, uh, the probability is greater than 50% that would drop out. So it would, so it, it just drops out, uh, on its own after a certain amount of time. So, um, it, it basically cycles. Oh man, hold on a second. I, I, I got this. <laughs> See? I got this. Okay. I don't know if this is a plot hole. I'm not sure. Well, so what they, what they, here's what they say in, in the movie. Okay. So, um, in order to collapse the waveform, they gotta like open the box and take the thing or they gotta open the box, which is an allusion to the Schrodinger's cat, yeah. uh, paradox, right? So they open the box. Um, so if they put the weeble in at point A, the amount of time experienced by it is, is, um, uh, they get 1347 minutes. So, um, it, after it, after they find that after about 1300 trips from point A to point B, the probability is better than even that it will just, that the waveform will collapse. So it usually works out to roughly 1300 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that they left it in there, uh, cause they, they would have kept the experiment going. They just kept running the experiments over the course of a few days. It, it ended up going through five years, I guess. Okay. That was where I was getting lost because I thought maybe if they, he just did this once or twice, how did it this moss grow for years? Yeah, no, that, that that's make any sense. no good, good, and that's a good catch. And I think that you know we don't really know how many times they they kind of experimented with it either because they remember that they had months between when they sort of first started experimenting to you know trying to get funding, right? So so several months pass. So depending on how many times to throw it. Right. But they were just building this thing. It was, and they were still tinkering with it until it actually worked, in my opinion. It wasn't like it worked. And then it was months of them trying to figure out what the fuck this thing was. At least that's from my memory. Yeah. Well, it's kind of not really clear. Like the, we, we see that they've built something and it does the thing that they don't really understand. And then months go by and we don't really know what's kind of happening in between. I got the impression that they were still testing it and they were using the same item, but art, art, yeah, it's not explicitly shown. No. And I think that's a dropped ball there because if yeah. you're going to use this as a MacGuffin, this one item to really launch the tail, I think a little bit better of an explanation. No, that's fair enough. I, I'm loath to try to go back and do the math on it to see if it actually works. But part of me wants to, but, uh, those, those science days are, are far behind me now. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can take on that task for uh, right. next time. That's your homework. Yeah. <laughs> That's our first uh, homework. Anyone who can prove me wrong or prove Jeff right or wrong. We'll send you a t-shirt with our smiling faces on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just guarantee that nobody wants to claim the prize. Oh yeah. So as part of the, uh, reveal here, so as Abe and Aaron are talking about how to make this thing work, you know, they theorize they could build a box. Uh, if they could put an intelligent agent inside the box, it could deliberately end, exit the box before it entered, uh, and there, and thereby traveling backwards in time. So, um, again, because the waveform can only be broken, uh, theoretically from the outside by somebody opening the box. If there's something inside the box, it can decide when to come out. It can choose to exit the time loop before it entered it. Uh, then we see that, uh, so Abe takes Aaron to the storage facility there. Uh, they're drinking a couple of Cokes and through the binoculars standing next to Abe, Aaron sees Abe across this field entering the storage facility. Uh, and, uh, how he explains it is that Abe builds a larger version of the box, uh, basically a coffin sized 
time machine, put it in the cell in the storage facility. I'll go through the times here as uh, I've, I've read them out just to help clarify. So at 8.30 a.m. Monday morning, Abe primes the box A to activate itself in 15 minutes. He then drives away from the storage facility and sequesters himself at a hotel, say 15 minutes down the road. Then the box activates at 8.45 a.m. and is completely powered up. Uh, we'll skip ahead. So at 3.15 p.m., Abe leaves the hotel, returns to box A, and switches it off. Now, as we've seen previously, when they switch it off, it still retains power for a few seconds as the waveform collapses, which takes about four minutes. So as the power is down, he gets inside the box and waits about six hours and then climbs out of the box. And as he's waited six hours, he's actually he actually exits the box at 8.45 when the box is power timed to power up. And at that point is when he approaches Aaron when he's sitting on the bench. And now it's 3.15 again, and Aaron and Abe see Abe get into the box to climb in and switch it off and then sort of disappear into the past. Very confusing. Very confusing. Yes, very confusing. But interesting. But interesting, exactly. So we're, we're, we're getting our, our heads around it. So at this point, so we can see that they've invented the time, this, this time machine and there's some type of loop going on. Uh, were you able to kind of pick up the logic of what Abe has done here? Uh, in a sense, obviously when he's first meeting Aaron on the bench, that's his, correct me if I'm wrong, that's his past self who's come out of the loop. Yeah. Correct. So then he's, yeah, that's right. And then he's purposely not bumping into his existing self and he's watching with Aaron how his existing self or in that timeline that coexists with Aaron, that Abe is going into the box. Correct. He's proving to him that, that he is from the past and that that's the guy who's going to be going into the box who will eventually go into the past, which is a loop. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, I think at this point, I mean, I remember the first time I saw this and I was confused, but kind of going with it, but I actually enjoyed the confusion. It sort of added to the, uh, I don't want to say mystery of the whole thing, but it adds to the atmosphere. I mean, something strange is going on and I, I like not knowing every single thing that's happening as I watch a film. It helps, uh, you know, unpack the puzzle over time. So, uh, anyway, so the practical application of this is, uh, when the next day Abe shows Aaron that he had made a very, excellent stock trade on Monday. And, you know, at this point, we have how they're going to monetize it. So now we have a second box built, one for Aaron uh, and one for Abe. Uh, They switch the boxes on at 8.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning. They drive two cars to the storage facility. They take one car back to the hotel and hang out at the hotel, come back at 3.15, turn off the boxes, jump in, get out. And this is Aaron's first ride, and he exits... Um, and he has a physical reaction to it. He's not, uh, he's not quite, yeah, he's, he's, he's woozy. It's not quite, uh, it's not quite, quite going. So what they're trying to do here is, you know, through the dialogue, we, we see that they're trying to modify history as little as possible. So they're, they're isolating themselves at this hotel so that they can minimize any causality. They don't want to run into themselves. Uh, they don't want to, uh, try to do anything that, uh, would, uh, you know, maybe prevent their, their doubles from, uh, getting out of the box or, or, or anything that, uh, would mess with the time frame. Uh, the only thing that they want to, the only objective for them to accomplish is find what, what stocks had a good day. Yeah. Yeah. Make money. Yeah. Exactly. 
Let's make some money. So again, going back to, I don't blame him because I'd be doing the same thing. I think oh, pretty yeah. much 99.99% of the people would be doing that of anybody on this planet, right, as humans. But I again still find it that the first thing they want to do is instead of maybe using this for the greater good or doing something interesting, a little bit more interesting with it, the first thing is, is greed. So again, showing you're saying if they want to monetize it. Yeah. So that's the first thing they do is I, I don't yeah. know why they didn't do lottery. Well, they, they talk about that. Um, cause that's what Aaron says. Like, why don't we do the lottery? And Abe says, well, what was the jackpot there? You know, however many million dollars, that's what a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for the next 30 years. Cause, cause the reason they don't do the lottery is cause they can do so much better. Or that's the explanation they give through the, through the dialogue there. And, and I totally bought it. Like, yeah. Uh, shit, let's make a bunch of money. And I figure that's what anybody would do, even if you wanted to try to use it for altruistic uh, means. Let's make some money first, make sure we're set, and then we can go and, you know, do good. Which, in fact, is also a characteristic of a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, if you take a look at uh, Bill Gates, for example, I mean, the man spent his whole life uh, building a massive empire and amassing a huge huge fortune he's one of the richest guys in the world and now in his his later years um you know he's he's writing checks for charities uh you know helping to you know cure malaria in third world countries and shit like that so um it's completely believable because that's exactly what these types of guys do yeah yeah no i agree with there's another so there's another important point here to to uh to highlight is that uh, through the dialogue is uh, we we are led to believe that the boxes are are kind of one time use only. So what that means is that after you've kind of after you've climbed out of the box you can't go back to it later, switch it off and climb in a second time because that's what your past self did. So you can't use the same box to continuously loop through the same day. Okay. That's what they lead us to believe at this point. Yeah, I completely missed that on my yeah. on my first viewing. Yeah. It's a, it's an important point because it 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 leads us to believe that they that they're both under this assumption at this point. Mm-hmm. So, they make some more money in the stock market, and again, this is uh only their second trip through. And that evening, so they're they're hanging out at Aaron's house there. He's chilling on the couch. He's got the beer bottle balanced on his chest. And uh, they ask uh, Aaron's wife about, yeah, you know, they're like, what would you do if you had unlimited wealth? They're just, you know, dreaming at this point. Now, Kara doesn't know, or the wife doesn't know anything about it. And uh, these two guys are, they both know this is going to be a reality. Uh, and she's like, I don't know, you know, like, well, you know, what do you do? Try to do some good. I'm not really sure. And they pose the question to Aaron, and he says that he would like to be able to go back, say, punch somebody in the face, Joseph Platts, the guy who screwed them before, and then being able to go back and uh, stop himself from doing it, or basically making it so it never happens, so that he doesn't so he have does to live it with it. and then he corrects it. Exactly. So then he doesn't have to live with the consequences yeah. of doing something immoral, but he still gets the pleasure of doing something immoral. Yeah. And I thought that this was really interesting at this point, because this is worse than greed. Yeah, I'd be... Going back and doing horrible, horrible things to you, but that's okay. Yeah, that's over fun. and over, <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> well, thanks, man. That's uh, that's really sweet to hear. I, I'm I'm really happy to I'm just <laughs> to be that guy. It's a little weird, but anyway. Um, and there's uh, you know, we get a voice over here. You know, uh, you know, Abe's like, we can't. You know, you can't do that. And uh, as as you know, Aaron says, or the voiceover says. The idea had been spoken and the words wouldn't go back once they've been uttered aloud. And we have here, you know, the, a version of Pandora's box. It's yeah. once it's out there, there's no, there's no putting it back. 
Because that means the temptation will always be there. Exactly. The temptation's there. That's yeah, right. So and there's, there's the... it, it's going to fucking happen. Exactly. On, uh, so the next day on, on Wednesday, we get a little scene there where they're, uh, they're, they're at the gas station and they're talking about, uh, you know, some of the philosophy was happening here, free will, paranoia, predestination. Uh, you know, Aaron sort of raises the problem that like living in a universe that's been engineered by somebody else. So we get some intimation here that they're starting to wrestle with some of the more existential philosophical problems of what it is that they're doing. Uh, you know, who's, what's, what's free will mean if, uh, you know, is their destiny at this point because they, they effectively have created time loops for themselves. So what's your, let's just talk about some, some philosophy here. Is there such a thing as predestination or is free will a real thing? Oh, geez. Those are big concepts. Uh, we're getting, we're, we're going into it, man. I'd say it's like, it's a mix of both. I mean, how can you lean one way or another? Because you have free will for sure to make any choice you want at any given time. But it's just like what Yoda says, like once you start down that dark path forever, it will dominate your destiny. Yeah. So there's some stuff like that are in that maybe we don't fully understand as humans. And maybe this is going to be applicable to the laws of nature, the laws of the universe as well, that it's momentum. Once you have a certain thought or maybe the way human, the human mind works, you have free will, but then you also don't. That ball, one thought will just lead to more thoughts in the same direction. It's a snowball effect. It'll keep going. These are the things that I'm just, I've thought about in the past too, applicable to like human nature, human desires, evil acts, greed. It takes a very, very special person to maybe always ensure that free will is more dominant than, as you're putting it, predestination. I tend to agree that it, it's, it's almost a combination of the two. I mean, I, I was thinking of a point that was brought up in uh, in the film Minority Report, um, directed by Steven Spielberg. And there's a line that close to the end there. Tom Cruise says uh, something along the lines of, uh, when you know your future, you can change it. But that also means that if you don't know your future, you can't change it. You're always going to make the decision that you're going to make because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So you can't make a different decision. You're going to make the decision you're going to make. So that's, I think that's an interesting perspective on free will. You can choose whatever you want, but you're going to make the decision that you're going to make in that moment because you don't know what the outcome is and you can't change it because when you make a mistake, you don't know that it's the wrong decision. It's you make a mistake and then you go forward. So, and then in the end, I mean, the perfect example also, you can as good as life and death. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Tully and Zorin, <laughs> you're not really going to be. <laughs> Time, Captain, is the fire in which we burn. Yeah, so I mean, um, you, you can't escape death, right? So right. there's that's predestination. Well, you can't escape death. I mean, that's true. But if you could make a decision that would prolong your life, maybe by five years or ten years, uh, you could avoid a car accident or. Uh, quit smoking earlier and prevent cancer or, or any a number of these things because you don't know you're going to get into the car accident. You can't zig instead of zag. You're always going to zag because you're making the decision in that moment, not knowing what's going to happen. Right. But then again, so, I mean, I agree. It's a combination of the two. And then yeah. also is this like, you're talking about again, human nature. I mean, we might be getting a little segue here, but say for example, if someone knows that they have, they're going to have a heart attack based on a bad diet. For example, they say they got, oh, that'll happen 20 years down the road. 
guess what? What's that one guy most likely going to do? He's still going to pig out saying, I've got time. I've got time. He's going to procrastinate. I've got time. And he's still heading in that one direction. Most people yeah, still that way. They're still not going to escape it. They're not going to be able to change their nature. No, exactly. They're not going to change their nature because, I mean, effectively you can't. You, you, you really can't. Well, I mean, I mean, you can. And there are examples of people who do. So I'm not saying that they don't, that never happens, but maybe it's too late anyways. But I mean, human, look at human history too. We keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. I don't think these filmmakers are thinking about these concepts necessarily. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I think they're more interested in the science of itself instead of the philosophical questions that you're bringing up. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the focus of this movie, in my opinion. Uh, I, I agree. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's the focus about this movie, but it does make me want to consider the questions. It, but you're right. It's not really in the, in the, uh, content here. I think that's correct. Yeah. So, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's kind of get back on track here. I mean, um, uh, so after their, uh, after their uh, philosophical discussion at the, uh, at the gas station, um, you know, they, they, they're kind of discussing some of the, uh, the, you know, the issues about keeping the time machine secret from Aaron's wife, uh, keeping it from their other, uh, the other, uh, business partners, Robert and Philip, uh, you know, they discuss a couple of small items, patent rights and all that kind of stuff. Really, it's just some, brown sort of guy small. gets screwed again. The brown guy always gets screwed. <laughs> sure. And they had to make him look so brown too, didn't they? Like, he didn't have an poor, accent, so I applauded that. That's true. Yeah. I didn't hear like there's the Indian music in the background when he came on and wasn't <laughs> doing like dance and stuff. So it wasn't like supremely racist. It was just sort of regular racist. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, so they get back out uh, on Wednesday. Uh, and at this point, Aaron is having really negative reaction. He's bleeding out of his ear. Um, you know, they make their, their successful trades. Uh, and then. We get, uh, we get a scene here and this, you know, this one was a little hard to understand at first, but, uh, I, I so I had to look it up and this was kind of a problem with, with the movie here. Uh, but there's a scene where, uh, Robert is out with Abe looking for, uh, the cat. Oh, hold on a sec. That might not be, that, uh, that's not correct. Okay. Sorry. Um, you might have to cut that out <clears throat> or not, whatever. Uh, Robert tells an interesting story to Abe. So the Monday night, so two days previous was this Robert guy's birthday party. Abe wasn't there, but his girlfriend, Rachel, was. And Rachel's ex-boyfriend also shows up to this party, but he's waving around a shotgun. And the story goes that Aaron, who was out also at the party, risks his life to defuse the situation safe, safely. Uh, and now Aaron and Abe on Wednesday night are, are out looking for the cat. And, you know, Abe is kind of calling Aaron out. It's like, you know, you've got a family, you've got a, you've got a kid, you, you know, you can't be taking risks that way. Um, he seems sort of confused that Aaron would be so irresponsible. Uh, and, you know, Aaron's, you know, talking some bullshit. Oh, I see the world differently and everything, but he's, he's being a little bit coy. So something else is kind of going down here, but it's, uh, information that's important for later on. Uh, I found this an odd scene going through the movie. So think about going through the movie and watching this scene. Do you get the idea that there's something more important going on here? Or is this just some bullshit that you're not really sure of? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really pick up on that because I think obviously what this leads to is that he's time traveling on his own, correct? That's in a way, yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So he was able to see things before they happen in a Jedi way. Yeah. So that, that's how he was able to save the person. I thought he just had stupendous reflexes, but, 
Yeah. So yeah, I figured that was probably the case, but mm -hmm. I didn't really linger on that too much. It kind of like, I guess when they later kind of explain it, then it was like, I knew it before they even admitted it. That thought was just implanted in my head at this scene. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we move forward to Thursday now. Uh, same routine again. They're hanging out at the hotel and, uh, Aaron, Aaron's cell phone rings and this is breaking their rules because they're supposed to not keep their phones. Uh, they're, they have to be completely sequestered, no outside contact. He answers the phone, talks to his wife about their dinner plans. And, uh, you know, Abe's like, you can't bring your phone. Like we just, we can't have any contact in order to avoid a possibility of paradox. Right. Yeah. In the timeline. Exactly. Um, and, uh, I, I kind of like the scene I like here. There, I like how they talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. These are the questions that we want answered. Uh, and I also like how they, they kind of ground it again as he's watching the basketball game. And he's like, hold on a second. This is like, this isn't how this is supposed to go. And then he's like, oh, okay. I remember how, how the game happens. Um, and I also, and it's small detail, but Abe like sets up this like gigantic skull sized muffin on a plate. He's got his place setting there and he's eating this muffin with a knife and fork, George Costanza style, uh, which I, uh, which I really liked. Um, now when they go back, and Aaron's cell phone rings at the same point that it rang before in the hotel. And now they're like, they have this discussion on how the hell the cell phones work, right? Whose phone is ringing? Are they both ringing or is only one ringing? Yeah, that's an interesting discussion. Yeah. Because they're both on the same carrier. It doesn't matter if it's six hours in the past or who, which one it is, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's effectively the same. It's the same phone. Uh, so they're, so, I mean, they, they think that if the phone, in the hotel, what they figure is only one phone can be ringing. So even though he doesn't answer it, you know, have they now created a paradox? And they're not sure because they can't. They have no proof of anything. Mm. So we, so here I get the sense. What I like here is like this is sort of the first time they really encounter a crisis of uh, causality. They're not sure what the hell's happening, and they're dealing with it by you know kind of trying to explain it scientifically. Like he's trying to explain how fucking cell phones work, and and I, I kind of liked how they dealt with that that conflict as a couple of scientists. I thought it was it's a small detail, but I thought it was interesting, and it starts to raise some interesting questions. What did you think of that that, yeah. that detail? I like how they bring up the idea. Mm -hmm. It was a good discussion topic. You know, big blockbuster movies probably wouldn't be here talking about cell phones that like they'd probably be talking about the larger paradoxes that you would you would experience how oh, all of a sudden you meet your 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 own self uh one of you is going to disappear or the whole universe is going to collapse and stuff like that here we're talking about something a little bit more simple and more realistic and grounded and it's like oh well if the cell phone which one's going to ring are they both going to ring in, in this timeline with my other self or because they're on the same carrier that that's not yeah. being affected at all so should I answer it? Should I not answer it? Obviously, the simple solution is, is they should have just, when you do the time travel or you get a different phone each time, yeah. the, the two guys going back, yeah, go purchase a prepaid phone, a brand new one every time you do a loop. So essentially, I like that part of the conversation that they're having because it's not a big topic. It's more of a realistic, grounded topic that probably really isn't brought up a lot in other similar time travel movies. Right. Something as simple as the technology itself. Yeah. Like, like yeah. a simple thing, like a, a technology that goes back with you, like a cell phone. But the way to counteract that, if I was them, I would say, hey, every time we do a jump or we go to the box, each of us buys a brand new 
prepaid phone. Because obviously you're going to be able to afford it. Yeah. If you're did they have money. prepaid phones in 2004? I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they had said like they had had rules, like they couldn't bring all that stuff uh, with them. And uh, I, I don't know. I got the impression that Aaron was bringing his phone with him on purpose and he wasn't being clumsy, but it's never really, it's never really explained if that's the case, but that's the impression I got. Yeah. I, I would say so. I'm just saying that that's one way to solve the paradox Yeah, is that, Every single time you go go back or you go get into the box, both of you are buying brand new prepaid phones before you go. Yeah. And then yeah. you dump it and then so your other another self can't call on that same frequency or your family can't or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. Also the paradox because then you buy a brand new one, go back in. Right. A different number. Yeah, good plan. We sh- you know what? We should build our own time machine and we got this shit locked down, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so then we oh, come I'm going to- back to 1993, man. Gretzky, you're in fucking trouble. Uh, that, that speaking of destiny, I'm pretty sure that that's a fixed point in time. It's immutable. You can't change it. <laughs> can't change it. <laughs> uh, so we get to uh, Friday uh, morning at uh, two two a.m. Uh, we see a scene of uh, some kids on skateboards being punks setting off car alarms outside uh Abe's house. Uh Abe goes to Aaron's house, gets him out of bed, and Abe is uh he's informed him that he's been routinely turning the boxes on at five PM and turning them off the following morning. Uh, presumably so that if they ever needed it, they could use the boxes to go back to the previous evening. So Abe puts forward a plan uh to basically execute Aaron's idea of punching this guy Joseph Platts in the face. Uh, and then using the boxes to go back in time to the previous afternoon and make sure. And so what they would do is that they would stop the kids from setting off the car alarms so that they'd never wake up in the middle of the night and then they'd never go punch the guy, uh, thereby preventing it from ever happening. But they would still have had the pleasure of, uh, popping the guy in the face. So in theory, uh, they would stay in bed all night and then get back in the boxes on Friday as normal and, um, would be no problem. However, as they're driving away, they realize that, uh, uh, so they notice the car of Abe's girlfriend, which he says is actually his da- her dad's car, Thomas Granger, the guy that gave them funding. So they're freaking out. They're wondering what the hell he's sitting outside, uh, uh, his house for. And, uh, you know, he, they make the note that he looks like he's got several days, uh, growth of beard on his face. Uh, but the last time that they saw him, he was clean shaven. So Abe phones Thomas Granger's phone number and the guy Andy answers, but he's not the same guy in the car. So, so I have they a question can... for you. I have a question okay. for you. So I, I got yeah. I understand all of that, right? Yeah. How can they determine that he's got the beard growth and all this stuff going on from they're driving in the car, correct? Yeah. And they're seeing the car a car following him. Yeah. How are they seeing he's got this bearded, like a five o'clock shadow or a couple of days growth of beard. Well, Aaron gets, I believe, if I recall correctly, Aaron actually gets out of the car and looks back at him and he can see him, if not like face to face, but there's only, you know, a hundred feet or so. And he can, so he can see his face. And, and I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, yeah, but it's, it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. And that's, that's just a, a device to let us know that they know something is wrong or that, oh shit. Um, you know, this guy's come back. Yeah, like or time. he's time traveling because they called yeah. the other his current self. Exactly. Yeah. So, so a couple of clues, and that I guess that helps sort of make the make the jump. It's hard. It, it wasn't portrayed well on film uh, because we don't really see the guy's face at all. Hmm. So, uh, so that, that's kind of what happens there. Um, Aaron runs after 
Granger, and it, and this is also, I, I felt not captured very well on film, but they both basically, uh, bail in the back alley there. Granger's completely unconscious and, uh, Aaron's down. So something weird is definitely going on, but Granger's basically in a coma. They take him back to Abe's house, throw him in bed, and, uh, then they go back to check on the boxes to see that they're on. So they're thinking like, they have the conversation. Did Granger come back in time? If so, how did he know about the boxes who would have told him? And, uh, you know, they have this conversation. They're like, well, I wouldn't have told him. I wouldn't have told him. I wouldn't have told him. And I can't remember who says what to who, but, uh, one of them says that, you know, I, you know, what if there was an emergency? And the other says, well, so you would have told them somebody if there was an emergency. So they're, th- so, you know, we're led to believe that in some crisis situation at some point in the future, they told Thomas Granger about it and Granger was invested enough in that situation to come back to that point to, obs- to whether to observe these guys, to prevent something from happening. Obviously it looked like a desperation move and the guy didn't even take the time to shave. So I get the idea that, uh, there's some kind of problem, uh, here. This is interesting here. Yeah. I like this aspect of introducing a future person, this Thomas Granger guy, whoever it may be, coming back and kind of, you know, causing some, you know, issues. Again, you're talking about causality, cause and effect. And it's finally giving playing a little bit more into a cinematic experience where shit, something is going to go down. Yeah. But the interesting here, thing here is, is I'm not sure if they really followed up with this. I can't even remember if there was a fallout from this or not. Uh, if there's a follow-up from this situation here? Yeah, like, what is the yeah. reason Thomas Granger came back? Well, what's interesting is we never really know for sure, but we can hypothesize, and I'll, I'll get to that. Sure, you can get to that, because I'm curious, yeah. that was one of the questions I would ha- I would have had for you. Well, we'll get to that, yeah. So okay. yeah uh, we we'll can get to that later, so yeah. continue. So, uh, basically, Abe loses his nerve, and it's revealed that he's had a fail-safe box the entire time in another storage unit, which has been running since before the beginning of everything, basically since early on Monday morning. So this box has been running uh, the whole week, yeah. uh, which he started uh, early as his fail-safe. So he, yeah, yeah, great idea. I really like this part here. So he returns, so he decides that shit's got real. Uh, we got to undo the whole thing. So he, he gets some oxygen, uh, some water, some nitrous oxide, and he gets back in the box and he travels all the way back to Monday morning yeah. in order to to undo what's been done. So now we're, you know, so now we kind of get the, the loop goes back and, uh, Abe, again, he exits the failsafe box. And what we see now is he actually travels to his house and he, he gasses his double or his present time self. So future Abe gasses present time Abe, mm-hmm. uh, with the nitrous oxide in order that they don't, uh, cross paths or so they has time to change things. And we get to that scene before where Abe approaches Aaron on the bench. So it's the same, only Aaron is now different. Or Abe is different. Aaron's sitting there, supposed to listen to basketball. Uh, but Abe is definitely in a bad place. He's ill. He's had four days, no food, little water. He's in shock. Um, Aaron is keeping this conversation the same as possible. Abe is not following. And when Abe falls over this time, which didn't happen before, the earpiece that Aaron is wearing falls out. And we were led to believe that Aaron was listening to basketball before March Madness, as what he said. We actually hear a recording of the very conversation that he is having with Abe at that moment. And this means that this Aaron 
is not the original timeline Aaron. No, this is an Aaron who has future. come back. Yeah. Yeah. It's future Aaron. Yeah. So shit, shit got real, real quick here. How did you find the reveal that this is future Aaron, not present day Aaron? No, I liked it. It was, it was a nice little twist. He didn't, didn't see it coming. Again, it was, this movie is a bit confusing. So after thinking about it a little bit more after the movie was done, then I got it. I yeah. mean, I obviously with the earpiece, you know that that was a future Aaron, but you're just still kind of putting it all together. Okay. Is he from the past? Is he from the future? Obviously then it's from the future once you put two and two together. So I liked this aspect of it again, getting back into a little bit of a cinematic experience trope kind of twist. So it was nice. I liked it. Yeah. It's yeah. not, a, I am your father, but it's, it's no. good. yeah. 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 Well, I love a twist where it's like, you don't see it coming, but when it happens, it's, you know, things start to sort of coalesce in your, in your mind. Right. Uh, so I, I kind of like that. So at this point here, He's kind of um, yeah, he is. He's kind of, this is the Kaiser Soze moment here for sure. Um, so here's, so here's a point. So before where I said, uh, you know, there was a point in the dialogue where they had, where Aaron had said they're not, where the, where the boxes were one time use only. Um, now we hear from Aaron that they're not one time use only. They're recyclable. So that means that although you can't re-enter the box you climbed out of, you can bring another box back with you and activate it once you climb out and use it later, traveling back to the same moment again, or what would probably be a few minutes later anyway. So what's revealed here is that in the future, Aaron discovered Abe's failsafe box anchored to Monday morning before everything started. He got inside the failsafe, taking with him a second box all folded up and everything to, to bring back yeah, with it. That's the confusing part because I didn't, yeah. I didn't know like you could fold up the damn boxes. Yeah. Well, he, he know, said it's not really explained the construction of these boxes. You yeah. Think they're pretty solid. So how are you putting a box in a box? Well, what he said, you know, the line, he said something. Yeah. It's a little confusing. He does say something along the lines of like the boxes are modular. So you can kind of break them down and package them up and then sort of build them out again. We're not, we don't see how that's possible, but he, he remarks that that's how they're able to, he, he was able to do it. Um, so anyway, so he gets back. So, a, so Aaron had discovered Abe's failsafe box by looking at records, uh, the storage facility. Uh, so he got inside the failsafe, gets out Monday morning, takes with him the second folded up machine. And when he gets back on Monday morning, Aaron from the future sets up his second machine that he brings back as another failsafe box B. Yep. Set for let's say five fifteen. Yep. So he he's always trying to keep one step ahead or yeah. <laughs> funny behind in the past. Yeah. Abe. That's right. He's, he's out doing Abe every time they want their failsafe. Abe's gonna do his failsafe, so then Aaron's wise to it, and he's yeah. gonna do his failsafe before back more in time before Abe does his failsafe. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's just over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That's the loop. Yeah, that's the loop. Exactly. So Aaron, we'll call this Aaron 2 from the future. So he goes back to his house and he drugs present Aaron. We'll call him Aaron 1's um, milk. So because he knows he's going to have breakfast. So he drugs the milk and then he stashes Aaron 1, who's comatose, in the attic. Um, and this means now that there are two Aaron's in this timeline without any recourse. There's no loop here. So now they're permanently two people. So Aaron 2 assumes Aaron 1's identity, and he records all of the week's conversations. That's why he has it. That's why he has it. So then he uses his failsafe, uh, his failsafe that he brought back with him to go back in time to Monday again, 
and takes another machine with him, which he has as a, another failsafe box. And we'll call this Aaron, Aaron three. Mm-hmm. So Aaron three goes back to his house just as Aaron two has finished drugging and stashing Aaron one in the attic. And Aaron three tries to subdue Aaron two, but he's too exhausted. He's been through the machine too many times and Aaron two wins. But after they talk, uh, Aaron three persuades Aaron two uh, to leave. So now we have three versions of Aaron in this timeline. So we have Aaron one in the attic. We have Aaron two who's been convinced to leave town. We have Aaron three. um, Who's the guy who had the earphone in his head with the recorded conversations in order to, well, presumably make the changes in this timeline. We don't know exactly what it needs to be. Yeah, this is where I was starting to get confused is what's his yeah. end game. Yeah, what's his end game? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, talk about it later. But yeah, that's where I'm just kind of saying, what what's the goal of trying? I get if you want to always be the guy in charge of that first failsafe in the past. Yeah. You always want to do outdo Abe, but I don't, really don't understand what's his goal and objective here. Right. I am only assuming right. it's just that. Well, we he's don't. He's in control. He's got the one who can go back no matter what before Abe can. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Well, there is there is an end goal, I believe. All right. So keep going. Okay. So okay. So that I mean, so that's the next thing. So he's so basically what's happened is Aaron's chose to come back in time, and he's basically duplicated himself twice. So what we know about the future is at that birthday party. Um, at that birthday party, we know that. Rachel's ex-boyfriend showed up with a shot, waving around a shotgun and, uh, Aaron had risked his life to successfully, uh, you know, peacefully diffuse the situation, right? Yeah. So, uh, we get, so we get, we kind of, we see a couple, uh, points where Aaron three is explaining to Abe about, uh, you know, who he is and like why, and he's come back. Um, he intimates that it was himself, Aaron, who had, been the cause of Rachel's ex-boyfriend showing up because he invited the boyfriend's cousin to the party and suggested that he bring the ex-boyfriend with him and he shows up to this party. So um, I think what this pieces together is that we know that Abe's girlfriend's father, Thomas Granger himself, decided that it was imperative to come back in time. So it, although we never know what happens in that future timeline, I think we can infer from this that in the future timeline, uh, Abe's girlfriend was killed or severely injured by the ex-boyfriend and his, uh, and his shotgun. And that's why he came back in time. Yeah. And Aaron's taken it upon himself. Like there was that party where she wasn't injured because he diffused the situation, but they, he wants now engineer events so that uh, I assume there's no danger. Everything's perfect, but this guy still gets arrested and he comes out of here. Yeah. So we're good. We're on the same page. Yeah, I I got that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh okay, so they they basically uh okay, so where are we at here? So on so now we're on Tuesday, this uh, the second time through. Um oh, hold on a sec. I skipped something here. So basically we you know, we we hear sort of the voiceover saying, you know, I don't know how many times it took to get uh or to reverse engineer the perfect moment, but for Future Abe and Aaron three, it, it works. They, they managed to diffuse the situation. The jealous X goes away and, and that's the end of that crisis. On Tuesday, Aaron one wakes up from his attic. Abe one wakes up. And so those guys are, if you will, the proper inhabitants of that timeline. Um, 
Yeah. So Abe and Aaron, they're at the airport. Uh, Abe's contention is that these guys are going to be building their own boxes in another day. Uh, you know, we have to, we, he, and his, he wants to, his argument is he's going to stay behind. He's going to sabotage the boxes. He's going to make sure that they never build them. Aaron's suggesting they steal their passports, get on a plane, get the heck out of Dodge. And I can make a bunch of money on March Madness. They know all the results anyway. Uh, and this is where they go their separate ways. Abe stays behind. Aaron goes off. And on the other side of the world, uh, Aaron too, he's making what's presumably this warehouse sized box. Uh, we don't know what his purpose is and the end yes. movie ends. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what is an odd ending? It is an odd ending. Yeah. yeah. So what did you think about, you know, the crisis, uh, his motivation for, for coming back to avert it? How did it play out? Was it satisfying to you or is it just a giant clusterfuck? You know, what the fuck's going on? You've explained it well and, and I got it in the first past viewing is his first thought of going back is to prevent Rachel from potentially dying or getting injured. Yeah. That's one of his goals or end games. When I was talking about end game, I wasn't really referring to that. That was one of the reasons to go back. And then another reason is to make money. So I think his first reason was let's make the money. Now, okay, you want to do punch that guy in the face and then erase it. Okay. But then you also want to save Rachel or prevent Rachel from getting hurt and getting that guy into jail. That's fine. Aside from that, I was a bit confused and I think it's a bit confusing for the audience on what Aaron's main end game is beyond these three events, except Mm. for always wanting to be the one in control. As I was saying, I think if they played the storyline a little bit more of Aaron versus Abe, in the sense that Aaron wanted to, once he realized that Abe had the fail safe to go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. He says, fuck that shit, because he can screw me over at any time. He has the ace card. I'm going to go back and do the same thing, but I'm going to go before his failsafe. Yeah. So I'm in control. Yeah. I think that would have been a bit more of an interesting story or a missed opportunity there. They did it very briefly, yeah. but I think that would have been a bit more interesting instead of them just talking about too many Aaron's and Abe's in one timeline and the drugging and the playing up the Rachel card. And then him going over to the warehouse at the end with Aaron too is kind of whole hum the way they kind of settled that last little bit here. Yeah. I wasn't really satisfied. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. I mean, I don't know that the true emotional conflict held a lot of weight because it was about, you know, Abe's girlfriend who isn't a character that we've really, that we got to know at all. We don't know her. So, um, and it's strange that it's Aaron who's motivated to save her, not Abe. But I, I mean, I suppose Aaron's the one who actually knows what happens. But, um, but yeah, I, I kind of agree. It's a little bit, it's a little bit ho hum. It's sort of a manufactured crisis. I mean, it's interesting how the causality sort of works out, uh, and that, you know, the time travel aspect. But you're right. I think it would have been more interesting if, uh, somehow they're played off of each other as opposed to dealing with, you know, some other, yeah, manufactured crisis, if you will. Yeah. I agree. A bit disappointing in the ending there. And then I wanted to ask you then, what was your take on him with the warehouse? Like, what's he doing there? Is this more like he's going to be sending large groups of people or armies back into time? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I remember him because he had referenced earlier, you know, that they, you know they could build a larger box, right? Something the size of a warehouse or something, uh, presumably so that they could... Uh, you know, send lots of people back or at least, 
uh, be able to house supplies so that, you know, you can go back further. I mean, you can't go back in time farther than when you built the box. Um, but you know, 20 years in the future, you had enough supplies as opposed to theoretically, you could come back in time 20 years. You have a large enough warehouse, you get have enough supplies to do so. So what was his objective at this point? I think his objective is at this point was that he didn't know what his objective was, but he wanted to make anything possible at that point. He wanted to be able to uh create the ultimate failsafe where I could have a facility so large and so powerful that whatever I wanted to bring back, I could. If I need to bring back an army, I can do it. If I need to bring back 20 people 10 years and just have enough supplies for 10 years, I can do it. Or build it large enough and then bring everybody back in time to build another failsafe box at the exact same time, effectively, so we can have two uh, giant warehouses. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little unclear, and I think that his motivations are unclear. He's more thinking like... I'm going to do it because I can, and that's going to open up all potential um, avenues to me so I could do whatever I want. I like that they play it ambiguous in this sense, yeah. like how you're bringing it up, because then it's left to the viewer to interpret what his, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because maybe yeah. he's going to seriously fuck up the world. Or the yeah. potential could be there, as you're talking about, bringing back armies, bringing back other things, you know, like, or if, if it's long enough, you could bring back weapons. Yeah. Whatever, whatever the application is, whatever the intention is, it, that threat is there. But from a cinematic point of view, I kind of wish they chose something hmm. at this point because maybe he didn't have to choose something and show like a bunch of, you know, an actual army marching towards this thing or anything like that. I'm not saying something like that, but a little bit more sense of dread to kind of give mm. the viewer a little bit, oh shit, like he could really do anything. Instead here, it just looks like one could interpret it as, oh, well, now I'm, you know, instead of my own garage, like we were talking about, he's now, you know, a big producer, big business, and I'm going to make these for everybody or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, I just wish they kind of did something different there in the mm. end. Yeah. It's just, it, it wasn't satisfying. Yeah, fair enough. I can see what you're saying there. It's, well, I mean, that being said, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it would have been dishonest to the movie to have something more spelled out there because the entire movie is a puzzle to be pieced together. Mm-hmm. So, so if they had done something more concrete there, I don't know if that would have fit exactly with the, uh, with the structure of the narrative to that point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like nothing's explained at all. So to explain what he's doing and why wouldn't really be consistent, I I think, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe. You're probably right. They probably kept it consistent. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, a couple questions I've got as we've uh, wrapped it up here. Uh, The director has said he kind of deliberately obfuscated the the plot um, because in his opinion, you know, the time travel, if you were there, would be extremely confusing. So he wanted us to be confused. I think it's fair to say that the average viewer is going to be confused on their first watch, their first run through of Primer. Um, do you think that that serves the movie or, or is that, is that detracting from it? In terms of the mechanism of the time travel, I like it. And then the surprising of the fail safe and then another fail safe and the twist. I think that served the movie very well because this is not your run of the mill thriller. Mm-hmm. They're more interested in the discovery of the mechanisms of the time traveling itself and the different possibilities, right? With these fail safes. Yeah. 
And I think that was the heart of the story. So yeah. if you, you make it less confusing, if you mainstream it, I think you lose some of that strength yeah. because the rest of the movie, you got no budget. You've got no action scenes. You've got no big ending. You kind of not only betray the heart of the movie, like what your focus is, but I don't really see how you can really play it any other way on this kind of budget. They played up the card of the science and making it and making this feel grounded and real. And they kept it confusing because of that, because that's, you know, tech is confusing to unless you're involved in the business itself or you made the, the thing yourself. Tech is confusing. So I think they played that well. Mm. So I enjoyed mm. that aspect. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that for the most part, uh, there's some interesting examples of this movie where the form of the film follows the content. Uh, I mean, you know, like you say there, you know, the the tech is tech is the tech is confusing to them it ought to be confusing to us and i mean even if you think about the movie itself you have to kind of go back and watch it maybe a second time or a third time in order to get everything out of it in a sense you know that sort of mirrors what happens in the movie where they have to go back again and again in order to figure everything out right so i i kind of found a i found a parallel there where the film seemed designed uh you know for me to rewatch it you know, which mirrors, you know, their journey, right? Going back again and again. So I, I thought that was, I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but I, I mean, I pulled that out. I thought it was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's no an interesting comparison there. Going into the other aspects of the movie, though, I think they could have just trimmed some of that beginning stuff with the moss and then maybe even eliminating this Thomas Granger coming back in time character. Cause you know, while you're keeping, I think if you keep the tech around the time travel, confusing for the realism part i think some of these other storylines they didn't need to confuse the viewers even further see that's interesting that you say because i I was thinking about that as well but if you look at the runtime of this movie the movie runs about 85 minutes like it's not even an hour and a half long so i'm wondering if that if they could trim any more from this because then you, you know then it's a short film you know what i mean because uh, I, I mean, I kind of had the same thought, like, is this necessary? And I felt that, um, I felt that it was necessary. In fact, I was reading when they, sh- as they shot this film, uh, they only, they, they only, like, they shot 90 minutes and the end movie was like 87 minutes long. Like they only cut one small scene out of it that they felt was unnecessary. So would you say that they just need to cut that stuff out entirely or they should have kind of cut that and replaced it with something else that would have moved you know, the plot to where it needed to be. I think they could have cut it and put something else in there a bit more interesting. As we mm-hmm. were talking about, I think then the focus of him just wanting to go back and do save Rachel. And I think he could have kept those scenes yeah. as his first intentions of what he wanted to do. But then I think as we talked about, I think they had the opportunity to play Abe versus Aaron a bit more. They didn't go down that route in my opinion, which is a detriment to the film mm-hmm. because they still in yeah. the end have that conflict still a right. versus Aaron, but they could have played that angle up a little bit more. In my opinion, mm-hmm. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting point. I think, I kind of think you're right because we, you know, we sort of agree that that, that end conflict is kind of manufactured. If yeah, they could have restructured perhaps to have the conflict between the two of them uh, more solidly. That might've been a, that might've made for a stronger, um, a stronger conclusion anyway. But um, just from a film standpoint, we basically have a couple of first time amateur actors here 
how did they come across to you? Like, did you, did you enjoy it? I thought, yeah, Yeah. I thought they did pretty, pretty good job for, obviously, you know, you're watching a very low budget movie. These aren't your grade A actors here. You don't know who they are or where they came from. So I didn't expect a lot from them and they didn't do a bad, half bad job. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I kind of like the understated nature of, uh, of these guys. They didn't try to put too much into it. It felt pretty genuine. Uh, the, the, uh, the main character there, uh, Aaron playing, played by the director, Shane Carruth. He was, um, he was an engineer himself. So he was, he was kind of bringing some, you know, some of his just natural, uh, inclinations, just being himself in the film. And I thought that, that served it well. Again, it kind of goes along with sort of the low budget, grainy look. Like the movie, it looks like it was made out of somebody's garage, which, you know, mirrors again the content of the film. This is just something. It's a low budget time machine that these guys built. And, and the, and the look of the film, I thought, uh, mirrored that as well, which, uh, I thought was great. I also liked the, like the, the overall idea is kind of contained, like the, it keeps the story personal. Uh, and, and I guess what I mean by that is just the nature of how their time travel works. You know, you can't go back in time further than when you built the box. So that keeps events within, you know, your, your kind of timeline. And also, you know, you have the physical constraints of being inside the box you have to consider food and air and water so there's only there's a there's a there's a finite period where you can actually get into this box to travel back in time and it keeps the story very personal i mean again obviously it's low budget so they have to keep it that way but i like that uh it all makes sense you know they don't have to it's like yeah i got a low budget movie but i got a time machine i can do anything but because i got a low budget i can only go back in time one day and make money in the stock market they make it work with the science that they have available to them. So I thought that was a really smart, a really smart choice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we tackled some of the, the, the big issues there with fate, uh, predestination. Uh, do you have any other, you know, thoughts or, or discussion points you kind of want to bring up on, on primer before we kind of move to our, recommendation portion tough to say i think we hammered all the main topics here i guess the one the one question i will have for you just with respect to the science and of the again the mechanism of the time travel itself did you find it pretty much foolproof bulletproof because you mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast you're looking for that foolproof time travel science fiction story Mm -hmm. i'm not talking about the whole movie itself i'm just now talking about the actual science behind the time travel here did it work for you and it was it perfect is that better than the other time travel mechanisms that you've experienced in other movies you've seen or other stories was it perfect i don't know that i have enough of a handle even now on the entire story to say it was perfect that there weren't holes in it um i found that the method of time travel was very unique uh, and i really liked that and uh it is it it's pretty close. I think it was, it's pretty close to what I would consider, uh, following its own logic and not, you know, and not deviating it and it, it making sense. I would so, agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I would agree. I think this is one of the better mechanisms of time travel that I've seen. It the only drawback is, and it's very hard to do. It's a low budget movie. It's because time travel obviously doesn't exist. So how do you explain? them building this thing but i felt there were some shortcomings in the way they were building the thing with minimal explanation i mean mm. and not with the exposition but 
I didn't need tons of exposition and I know there was some jargon there and stuff like that. And they, sh- they showed some thought and some steps into slowly building this thing. I just felt that that portion could have been a bit better or a little bit more, I hate to use the word, but entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In that yeah. aspect. I think that just, it wasn't entertaining in that, in that aspect for me. That's uh, unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I, I think they kind of, the way I saw it is, I mean, how much do you want to explain your time travel, right? They explained it a little bit. You know, we see a machine that's basically an anti-gravity machine. No, but you know what I, I mean? Okay, so let me just, just say, maybe I should elaborate. To okay. Me, it just looks like they're building a metal fucking box. And yeah. they're putting something inside of it, and it doesn't look impressive. Right. So what the fuck is going on here? Like, maybe if you show me having a catalytic reaction or something going on or something interesting, because all of this is fake. They just visually speaking, I think they could have done something a little different there. But again, because you have almost no budget, what are you going to do? Right, exactly. I I understand the limitations, but in the end, do I forgive the movie for that or not? I don't know. That's an interesting, Mm. Mm. you'd have to think about that. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, I guess then you got to make the decision, you know, as a viewer, I mean, obviously it's a low budget film. So yeah, is it enough? Yeah. And that's a good, and that's a good point to be for me. I felt it was enough. Uh, because I could, I could make the leaps that my brain needed to in order to kind of believe what they were doing. But, um, yeah, I mean, obviously they had to make choices with the film because of the budget constraints. And as we've talked about on previous episodes, sometimes the, cons- the constraints make for more creative choices on the, uh, on the filmmaker's part. Um, I think they did a, an effective job of turning that into, you know, the guys building the thing in their garage. I mean, is it easy to believe that, a, that they could build a time machine in their garage by accident? Well, I guess it's a bit of a leap, but I don't know. For me, it, it for me, it, 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 it kind of fits, I suppose, because it, it's the story that they're telling. Uh, okay. Well, I, I mean, I think that, uh, maybe we can wrap up the 2004, uh, ball busting mindfuck that is primer. So Harry, I will pose the question to you. Is this a recommendation? Is this a rare antiquity? And why or why not? Uh, this will be an interesting answer. Okay. You know how we say recommendation and rare antiquities are two different things. Yeah. I'm going to say as an over, like I'm impressed, very impressed and hats off to this movie for, because it had no budget. These are amateur filmmakers and they crafted a, a unique, authentic, authentically unique story, which was very good. But entertaining, it is not, in my opinion. It, you know, mm. it ask, makes you think, which I like. I like my movies to make me think. But, you know, in, in some aspects here, I felt like I was watching almost a documentary. You know, it wasn't, yeah. it's not entertaining. So, and, and then there are faults with the story. I mean, obviously you have inexperienced filmmakers. So I think we talked about I think they could have played up certain different angles as we talked about the Abe versus Aaron. Some of the end game motivations was a bit confusing. I'm not against the science being confusing and I like that aspect, but then Mm -hmm. I like some of the other motivations and the characters to be a bit more in depth because right now I'm having a hard time, still having a hard time understanding what's motivating Aaron in particular. Abe's a bit more straightforward, but Aaron in particular I don't know really what is what he's doing. In the end, again, while it's nice to leave it ambiguous, I kind of wish they gave a hint in him yeah. again. And I think maybe you wouldn't have to have done that if 
the character was a little bit more well had a little more layers beforehand but they made it simple and realistic so i understand why they were doing it so i would give it a definitely it's a recommend uh, i would say it's really geared more towards people who want to think if you're looking to be entertained forget it go somewhere else but if you don't mind if you like science fiction and you you're not afraid to think outside the box to really understand the movie you're going to have a good time with this movie it's well worth the watch but as an overall feature, it's a mixed bag in terms of the recommendation. So mm-hmm. I put it as a weak recommend, but saying that, it's a rare antiquity. Because, Interesting. Because it is a unique story. You haven't experienced time travel, then multiple loops and, and the twists that have happened in this movie. And because it's an amateur movie, I have to give them kudos to give them that rare antiquity vote. I mean, how can you mm-hmm. not? Because it's yeah. so, and it's unique. That's why it's a rare antiquity. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting choice you made there. Because yeah. it's usually, yeah. it's usually the other way around. The other way around. It's yeah. It's got to be a really good recommendation. And then is it a rare antiquity? Right. But here right. it's like, I, from my perspective, weak recommend, barely, but it is a rare antiquity. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely understand what you're saying there. It, it's, uh, it's a, it, it's a difficult movie. And yeah, from a, well, traditional standpoint, it doesn't have a lot of the entertainment value that, you know, we might be looking for in a film. Um, you know, un- unless you really get your thrills out of your mind getting twisted into a pretzel and you're trying to work out a puzzle. Like if you're entertained by trying to solve a Rubik's cube, for example, then you'll probably be entertained by this because that's what you like. You know, if you're like me and you want to throw a Rubik's cube through the front fucking window, uh, you know, yeah, you might, you might, you might just get frustrated by this movie. Um, so I, I can, I can see what you're saying. I am going to give it a recommendation because how, I, how is high it, is this like a, a bear recommend? Is this a very high recommend? Like you have to kind of give me, give, give me some of insight there. Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I'm going to give it a moderate recommend, but to people who enjoy the puzzle, uh, you know, somebody, if you like a puzzle and you enjoy a film where you have to watch it a second or a third time in order to figure out everything that's going on. I mean, if you find that entertaining, yeah, I got to recommend it. And I, I appreciate that movies are like that. I mean, I was entertained. Um, ah, man, that's, I mean, by your criteria, you bastard by rigging the game on me here. Son of a bitch. Um, I, yeah, I guess I got to agree with you there. It, it, you know, if it, it's not strictly speaking entertaining from a traditional standpoint, uh, but is this a rare antiquity? Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is a rare antiquity. It's, it's unique. Uh, it's, it's experimental. It does things that, uh, you know, you don't see because it's not traditionally entertaining. Uh, it, you know, it can kind of throw out a traditional narrative and, craft the story in its own unique way. And I mean, I mean, I really appreciate that, especially nowadays when every movie seems like a copy of the last, you know, it might be entertaining, but it's empty in this for its problems, which this it does have. This isn't a J.J. Abrams movie. No, no, this is not a J.J. <laughs> Abrams. This is not a J.J. Abrams joint, ladies and gentlemen. It is. So I guess then a lot of, uh, depending on your viewpoint of J.J. Abrams, you're either going to run for the hills or you're going to run towards this movie. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? You know what? That's actually a really good way of putting it because uh, JJ has made a you know a science out of the the paint by numbers uh, entertainment factory, right? The movies are very particularly structured in a certain way, and that's and that's what lots of people find entertaining, including myself. I I, I generally am entertained by JJ's movies. Um, my brain isn't really engaged, 
but I, I appreciate a hard intellectual sci-fi movie and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's a rare antiquity for me, for sure. Yeah, so I agree. All right. I guess that wraps up, uh, primer. Uh, Harry, why don't you surprise us with, uh, your next choice. Well, I'm not 100% sure if you've seen it. I'd probably wager right now you probably have. It's a movie, again, that I had not seen, uh, surprisingly, but it's uh, always been on my radar once again. The Tim Robbins psychological drama slash thriller Jacob's Ladder. Oh, no, I've never seen Jacob's Ladder. So, yep, that's what we're doing next time. Nice. Yeah. So nice. The, I've already seen it over the last weekend here. I did watch it. Yeah, so it should be an interesting interesting talk. We'll see what you think next time. Awesome. Right on. No, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's actually it's been on my radar, so I'm, I'm glad we're, we're digging into that one. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for uh, being on the show, discussing the Brain Pretzel Primer, and... We'll, we'll catch you next week. Sounds good. It was fun. All right, man. Talk to you.